This is episode number 136, my keynote on high-performance living at Inspire Your Ride Bike Festival. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, sports science, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I thought that everybody would love me more if I was better at what I was doing. And my self-worth was so tied up with, I have to be the best or I'm not good enough and I'm not enough. And that's a really difficult thing because in our society, we so often reward someone's achievements over who they are as a person or what they've been through in their lives. And it's something that I constantly have to remind myself of. And I'm really excited about today's episode because I get to share a keynote speech I gave back in July at a new bike festival called Inspire Your Ride in Nampa, Idaho. And this was the inaugural year. So if you are interested in going to Idaho or you currently live there, make sure you stay tuned for next year's bike festival. Public speaking is actually one of my favorite things to do, despite the fact that some people fear public speaking more than death. But for some reason, I really love it. And I love speaking because I feel so alive when I'm in front of an audience and I feel the energy of the people around me and it gets me totally amped. And this speech is about how I got into mountain biking and the elements of high performance living I attribute to feeling positive, having a strong mindset, being your healthiest self and some tricks for dealing with stress. This bike festival was put on by an amazing community building bike shop in Nampa, Idaho called Rolling H Cycles. And I love getting to meet everybody there and spend some time with them. And we even did a couple of public group rides in a few places, which I really enjoyed as well. I hope you enjoy this keynote. And before I get into it, I wanted to let you guys know that you asked, I heard you with Moxie and Grit, you guys requested baggy jerseys, like mountain bike style jerseys. And those are going up today on the website available for pre-order and they will be shipping in October. So how that works is I have to order them in advance, submit my design, and then it takes about six weeks for the jerseys to be made. So I have a set amount that I ordered. If you would love to grab one, I also changed the color scheme. So it's pretty fun with a, a cool blue color. So if you want to get a Moxie and Grit three-quarter length sleeve baggy jersey, I encourage you guys to pick one up. And if you really like the cycling jersey with the full zip, we have a few left. So you can go to moxieandgrit.com and grab yours there. And one more announcement. If you're not familiar, I have a free weekly newsletter that you can sign up for at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And it's not a spammy newsletter. We send out each Friday the two podcasts that came out during the week and any news that we have to announce. And thanks so much to those of you who are signed up for that newsletter. And it's awesome to be able to reach out to you individually and share all of my news with you. All right, so let's get into my speech. You can hear my journey to cycling, mindset to get through the hardest challenges in life, a little bit about explanatory style, how to meditate and how that creates space, how to deal with stress, how to create identity-based habits, eating with a plant slant, and a lot more. Thank you, you guys. And big thanks to Adam and Rolling H Cycles and Jessica Wyman for putting on this awesome event. Community is the most important thing about being a mountain biker. And 
I bet you many of us felt like we didn't belong anywhere until we actually found cycling. And that was definitely the case for me. So getting to come to events like this really means a lot to me because I get to plug back into the community that keeps me going. So give yourselves all a hand and give Rolling H a hand as well. Ooh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so I'm gonna tell you guys how I got into the sport. I think that because of NICA, there's gonna be different stories that are gonna be coming up through the ranks, which will be really fun to hear. But especially a lot of women got into mountain biking almost by accident. I didn't grow up as an endurance athlete at all, so I was a nerd. Well, was. I still am a nerd. But I grew up really focusing on my grades in school. Uh, I was also in the school band. I played the flute and the piccolo one time at band camp. I was also head of the marching band of our section, so I was really into that. Uh, I played soccer growing up, and that was, that was my first sport that I did, and I loved soccer. I had posters on the wall of the World Cup women's team, and I, I played all the way up until I got to high school, and I wanted to be a pro tennis player, I mean a pro soccer player. But I also was playing tennis, and whenever I got to high school, my parents said, well, you're gonna have to make some choices because you can't do everything, which is the hardest life lesson, which I'm still working on. So I had to choose what sports I wanted to play and what I wanted to do. So I continued with band, and I remember standing up on the marching band asphalt area watching the soccer tryouts wondering if I should be there but I was really happy I did band and I also played tennis and in high school I wanted to be a pro tennis player and be like Pete Sampras and I must have always just had this dream of being a professional athlete because of all those different sports but I never really thought that I could do it and some things happened in high school I was picked on a lot and I really felt like if I just tried harder, then people would like me more. Or if I just got better grades, or if I just was better at tennis, or if I could just do something, maybe people would like me. And I was really insecure, and I just really wanted that. I wanted to have confidence. I wanted to feel like I belonged. And it was a really tough time for me. But I was in my honors calculus class, and this girl in my calculus class was saying that she was gonna run a marathon. And I really looked up to this girl because she was on the soccer team. And she was really popular. So I thought, maybe if I could do what she's doing, maybe people will like me then. And the secret to getting people to like you is first liking yourself. So running was a really interesting time for me. I just started as a senior and was still doing all these other things. But it was the first time I really did something that I kind of felt was for me. And I, of course, all or none, I, my first goal was to run a marathon. So I thought, I'm going to do this. And I had knew nothing about marathon training. So I just started running a lot. And I ran my first marathon when I was 18 years old. And it wasn't perfect at all. But I just remember being excited to be there and excited to have this new identity as a runner. And something weird happened whenever I started running. People started to like me. And suddenly, the popular kids wanted to be my friend. And I did not understand why. To be honest, I was a little bit angry about that because I thought, I'm still the same person. But the fact is, is I wasn't the same person because I had found confidence in an endurance sport that changed my perception of myself and changed what I thought that I was capable of. And that's why I think mountain biking, especially for younger people, is so important because it gives you that strong, powerful vibe that you actually feel yourself and you actually emit that into the world. So how did I become a mountain biker then? Hmm. 
Well, I continued trying to run and run train in not so good of a way. I kept getting injured. I got a stress fracture, which actually prevented me from playing collegiate tennis, which was kind of a bummer. But the amazing thing about that was it led me to going to spin class at the gym. And spin class at the gym was really fun. Like the spin instructor was this cool guy and he played all this fun music. And I had a place to go every single week and just be with these people riding our, our spin bikes. And then not too long after that, I'm also an engineer, Fairley's dad, power to the engineers. Uh, <laughs> I was at, doing an internship and these guys at my work said, hey, you wanna go mountain biking? And I had only had one experience mountain biking and it was going mountain biking with a guy that I had a crush on. And what happened was this guy invited this other girl and he liked this other girl and they both just left me in the dust and I had never been mountain biking before. So that wasn't a good experience. So when these guys asked me for my work, I was a little bit hesitant, but I decided, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna go on this ride and see what happens. And I ended up loving it. It was really fun and I was actually kind of good at it. And two weeks later, I signed up for my first race. So that happened really quickly. And I'd like to say the rest is history because I just loved it. I went all in and I started racing in college at UNM in New Mexico. And I went into this sport thinking, wow, like this is changing my perception of what I think. Because at that time I thought I had to go to college, get my degree, like follow the path, be an engineer. And I honestly didn't really want to do that. I just was doing it because that's what everyone else in my family did. So joining the cycling community where people had these crazy dreams that they were going after, wanting to travel, wanting to be a pro, I thought, well, maybe I can do that too. And my family didn't really like that. <laughs> There's got to be a black sheep in every family. And that was me. They're all engineers. And I did finish my master's in engineering. And I'm glad that I did. And a lot of times people ask me, well, do you regret that? But being an engineer taught me how to work hard and how to manage my time. And it taught me that there is lots of different ways to solve a problem. And becoming a pro mountain biker is, is kind of difficult because you have to figure out, well, how am I going to support myself financially? How am I going to make time to train? How am I going to work? So I started with cross country racing in Colorado. And I had come from this background of being a complete perfectionist. And again, I still thought I was 20 years old. I still thought that Everybody would love me more if I was better at what I was doing. And my self-worth was so tied up with, I have to be the best there, or I'm not good enough and I'm not enough. And that's a really difficult thing because in our society, we so often reward someone's achievements over who they are as a person or what they've been through in their lives. And it's something that I constantly have to remind myself of. I'm a recovering perfectionist, so it's something that I'm always going to have to deal with. And I'm sure everybody here has had this in some part of their life. So what happened was in Colorado, it's really competitive there. There was all the top pros at that point. And at my first couple of cross country races as a pro, I had these grand expectations of, well, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna be really good. Wrong. I was last place or almost last place at almost every single race. I cried through my races. Literally, I'd be riding and crying at the same time because I wasn't good enough. And that was a really hard pill to swallow. I would fantasize about stabbing holes in my tires so I would have a reason as to why I wasn't good enough. And that was one of the most important lessons that I ever could have learned. And a lot of other things happened that year that made things difficult. It was my first year of grad school and I was used to being the straight A student, the kid everyone look up to, I could do anything. Well, I'll tell you what, 
grad school is hard. And I worked hard and I got two Bs and a B minus. And in grad school, that is considered being on academic probation. So I went from being this top expert mountain biker in New Mexico, the kid with all the good grades, to suddenly I'm having the dean sign my piece of paper because I'm on academic probation. I'm finishing in the back of these races. Wow, who am I? What am I about? Do I want to keep going? And actually, it was when I found yoga in Colorado where it became more of figuring out who I was and what my expectations were and that it was okay to not be the best. So I, I tried to apply that and I was racing cross-country races all around and I've been racing mountain bikes for 15 years, so that's it's quite a long time. And I decided that after a number of years, cross-country racing wasn't for me. And it wasn't because that I never had any top-level success. I was a mid-pack cross-country racer in the United States. But I loved riding my bike because I loved adventure, and I wanted to see the world, and I wanted to get to ride my bike for longer hours. So someone suggested that I try endurance racing. Maybe I should try a 100-mile mountain bike race. And cross-country races are typically 15 to 20 miles. They're very difficult because they're high intensity. If you make a mistake, it's going to cost you. Whereas in an endurance race, you have time. If you have a flat tire, you could still win. Cross-country racing is a little bit more high pressure. So I signed up for my first 100-mile mountain bike race, and I believe this was in 2010. And something wonderful happened. I loved it. And it was hard. I, I said to myself, I'm just going to try to finish this thing and see what happens. But after I did that, I thought, wow, like I did 100 miles? What else can I do? This is crazy. And not long after that, someone invited me to do a stage race, so multi-day racing. So stage racing is amazing because you get to see a large portion of an area, a country, a state, a region. You get to ride all the trails. So if you like riding your bike, stage racing is definitely a way to go. But what I found about all of this endurance racing was that it was really about your mental fortitude. Our bodies, yeah, you, there's, there's people who can be faster in endurance races for sure, but I kid you not, you could be winning a race, you could be having a great race, but you almost always wanna quit. And that's something that people don't really realize is that every race, I think about quitting. And every race, I decide not to quit. And that really, really helps in so many other areas because there's lots of things that we wanna quit at and learning how to keep going has been one of the most important lessons that I've been able to share with people. But it's hard to do it in a graceful way. Like, maybe you don't want to keep going. Maybe you're completely miserable. And stage racing really helped me develop my mindset, my mental toughness as a racer. And it was really this race I did. It was the first big international, actually, it was the second international stage race I had ever done. And it was a race in Nepal. It was a 10-day mountain bike stage race across the highest mountains in the world, the Himalaya, and no woman had ever finished it before. I had never done anything like this in my life. I had barely even traveled outside the United States, but I had an opportunity to go to this race, so I said, I'm in. And I was terrified. Like, what if I got altitude sickness? And this race wasn't very well supported, so if something happened out there on the trail, you'd have to turn around and go back by yourself the way you came. And some bad things happened to my teammate. <laughs> he ended up getting very ill and it was I, he shared the room with me so I saw all of my fears play out right in front of me to him. And on the ninth day of this race, I had to hike my bike in the snow about 18,000 feet, 17,769 feet. We had to start at four o'clock in the morning and hike our bikes through the snow. And I, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I don't even know if I can make it up here. 
but I did. It took three hours to go three miles, but I made it up to 17,769 feet. All I had to do was ride my bike down the backside of this mountain and ride my bike one more day and I would have accomplished my goal. And then the wheels fell off, almost literally. I looked down at my brakes and there was oil coming out of the brakes because they were prototypes. And who tests brakes to work at 18,000 feet? Nobody. So I had no brakes, there's no bike shops. So I had to walk my bike for seven hours to get to the finish line. And that sucked. And I actually did a TED talk on this if you wanna watch it. I actually was like bawling, like crying. And I remember somebody saying, document your experience. So for whatever reason, through my, my hissy fit, I pulled out a camera and I videoed myself crying. That's in my TED talk as well. And this was a really important moment because my goal was to be the first woman to finish this race or even to finish this race. And now it was looking like this wasn't gonna happen anymore. So I just say to myself, what was the most important thing about this experience? Is it being the first place woman? Is it finishing? And I decided in this moment, no. Success to me was showing up today and every day and being brave enough to sign up for this thing and to show up and to keep going every day when I wanted to quit. And that set me on to a crazy trajectory of wanting to take on all of the world's hardest stage races. And that's what I've spent the last nine years of my life doing. So I've raced in, I don't even know, maybe 20 countries. And the reason why I like this is because it teaches you so much, doing challenges, putting yourself under stress. Think about all those times where you did something that was really meaningful to you, the most meaningful moments you've had. And chances are you had to work hard to get them. So if we wanna live a, a high performance, meaningful life, we have to take risks and we have to go out there and go for those things that Fairley was saying on the back of that card that you wrote down that you're afraid to do. And it's hard sometimes, I have to say. So what attributed to this mindset of being able to go race in the Sahara Desert and hike my bike and, and ride through sand dunes or go to Haiti where there was a travel advisory to not race? How did I do all of this? I took a lot of research because I wanted to see what is it specifically that is allowing me to figure out how I'm getting through these races. And that's the, that was the most common question. So I'm gonna break it down for you guys. The first, and, and this also explains a lot of my perfectionist qualities growing up and why I was always so afraid to fail. Now there's a great psychologist and her name is Dr. Carol Dweck and she wrote an amazing book that I found probably four years ago titled Mindset, and you should definitely read that book, especially if you have kids. And this book talked about the different ways that we perceive our failures, our efforts, our processes. So kids with a fixed mindset and people with a fixed mindset think that they are defined by failure. They think that talent, intelligence, IQ, their ability to do anything is fixed and they can't change it. And we might, you might say, oh, that, I don't believe that, but how many times have you failed at something and felt that you were a failure. Someone with a fixed mindset thinks that, and I had that. And there can be areas in your life where maybe you don't think that, and maybe you do, so you can have a partial fixed mindset. Her other mindset is called a growth mindset. People with a growth mindset believe that they can work hard and change anything. They're capable of doing anything, and it just takes effort. And our brains actually can change. It's a thing called neuroplasticity where you can actually rewire your brain so that whenever you start thinking in a certain way, you start going in a different path. And if you're wired to think negatively, you will continue to think negatively. But if you begin to start changing how you view your thoughts and how you view what you're doing, 
you can actually take yourself down a completely different path. And that's what I had started doing whenever I started focusing on taking on these challenges, trying not to prove myself, but trying to figure out who I was. And that was amazing. The next thing, so think about whenever you're having these mindsets, whenever, if you say, I can't do it, that's a fixed mindset. If you think, I got this grade on this test, this defines me. I definitely was that way. I was getting my test back in school was the most terrifying thing ever because that percentage would validate whether I was smart or dumb. And that's not how it is. And a lot of racers look at your race results in that way too. When we put so much pressure on ourselves to be number one, or if I didn't get on the podium, well, then it's not even worth it. And it's not the case. I've seen racers who are really, really motivated and worked hard to do well, burn out of racing because they were so fixated on having this result and so fixated on number one. So focusing on your process and not the outcome of something is really what matters most. And that can be really challenging when you're going for a big goal. But as Farrelly said, it's not about always achieving that goal. It's about getting as close to it as you can. So <laughs> whenever I go to a lot of my races, the conditions aren't always amazing. So last year I went to Spain and I did this six-day race called the Andalusia Bike Race. I had done it twice, and the first year I did it, it was amazing, nice weather. The next year I went, it was pouring rain. And all of these people came from all over Europe because they wanted to get away from the winter. It's in February. And they wanted it to be great. Well, it was pouring rain. And I tend to thrive in situations where it's, the conditions are poor because a lot of times people mentally melt down. Now, why does this happen? Why do people, some people thrive in situations when it gets really hard and others don't? And there's something, this great psychologist named Dr. Martin Seligman, he's the father of positive psychology, and it's called your explanatory style. So how do you tell yourself a story on a, about a situation? Because there's always a story that we make up inside of our minds once we see something, we perceive something, and we start creating our own reality around it. So around this race, if it's raining outside and it's muddy, People start telling themselves a story. Oh, this is gonna be miserable. I hate riding in the rain. I came here because I wanted to experience warm weather. I'm not gonna to get to work on my tan lines, like whatever it is. Or you could say, wow, this is gonna be really fun. I'm gonna have an adventure out there. I'm gonna get muddy and get really cool photos. This is gonna be a race and I'm not gonna forget. I'm gonna thrive in this situation. I'm gonna have fun out there. And being able to change how you tell yourself the story about whatever it is you're experiencing is incredibly powerful. And there's also something called the counterfact. So if you look at something and you say, tell yourself the story about it, there's another way you can tell yourself the story about it. So I'll use a car accident as an example. So someone could get in a car accident and break their arm and say, oh, I'm so unlucky. Bad things always happen to me gosh, now I'm going to be inconvenienced with this broken arm. I'm so unlucky. My life sucks. Or someone could get into a car accident and say, wow, break their arm. I'm so lucky. Like, I'm so lucky that it wasn't worse. I'm so lucky that nobody else was hurt. This is only six weeks to heal. This is really temporary. So we really do get to decide how these situations affect us. And our thoughts really do create our reality. And taking that a step further, and this is new for me, there is something called the ABCDE. I've heard, I've heard it called the ABC model or the ABCDE model. And it's how we look at these situations again and how we choose to tell ourselves the story. This is literally the most powerful thing you could ever practice. And when you buy that journal that Fairly told you to buy, 
you can write this down and you can practice situations that happen during your day where maybe you don't feel like it went very well and figure out how to tell yourself the story in a different way. So A is the action. A is the thing that happened. So we will use the rainy bike race or if someone has an example I can use, I could take that too. Anyone? All right, I'll use a different example because this was a really annoying thing that happened. I went to Brazil to do a race and my uh, plane was delayed and I missed my connecting flight. And I almost missed the start of the race. That was bad enough. Then my luggage got lost for five days, so I actually couldn't start the race. So, you know, this could be bad. So A is the action. What happened? I missed my flight, my baggage didn't show up. That's a fact. We get to choose what we want to tell ourselves about this fact that happened, but that happened. Can't change it. What is our belief about this fact? B. My belief about this fact at the time was, oh, this really sucks. I'm not going to be able to race. I traveled all this way. I worked so hard leading up to this. C is the consequence of that belief. So I, I thought, well, this is going to suck. So the consequence is it's probably going to suck if you think it is. And you're going to be focused on all the negative things that are going to support that negative belief. But you can change that. So you can't change what happened, the action, but you can change the belief and the consequence. So if I change my belief about it, I could say, well, I can't control the airlines, unfortunately, but I'm still going to Brazil. I'm still going to meet lots of people. And when my luggage shows up, I'm still going to get to ride my bike. Well, what's going to be the consequence of that? Sure, I didn't get to race, but hey, I got a training camp in Brazil. That's pretty cool. So in order to do this, you have to dispute your belief. So write down what your belief is about a situation that you're struggling with and ask yourself, is it true? Use logic to try and prove it wrong and then try and write a different way of belief. Try and change your belief and your consequence will be different because there are lots of self-fulfilling prophecies that happen. Like when you're really nervous for a race and you think it's going to go poorly, it might go poorly because you believe it's going to. So being able to just take yourself out of that situation and be objective about it can be a really powerful tool. The biggest challenge about doing all of these mindset things is the awareness that it's happening. A lot of times things will happen and I, I thought that I had a pretty good handle on my emotions until I got a puppy. And I thought that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm cool as a cucumber. I, I, I have a lot of space between the response to my emotions and man, that little dog, he's very cute, but he can make me angry in a split second, a temper I never knew I had. So the awareness around this comes from breathing. It comes from writing down these situations so you can start feeling yourself getting worked up to this. Meditation is a very powerful tool that you can use and it doesn't have to be complicated. You can just sit down, you can just do it for one minute a day if you wanna start with that and just try and notice when your brain starts going off into a tangent on, in thoughts. And that's what starts happening whenever you're in these events, in these challenges in your life, and your brain just starts taking off. So knowing when your brain is taking off and being able to pause and come back to your center is so powerful. The next thing I want to talk about is stress. Who's had stress? Yes, stress is a big part of our lives. We need stress. We always say, oh, I'm so stressed out as a negative thing. And stress can be very negative. In fact, it can kill you. But being able to use stress in a positive way is actually really helpful. So think about a bow and arrow. If you're shooting a bow and arrow, you need to put that bow under some type of stress or that arrow is not going to go very far. But if you pull too far, well, what's going to happen? The bow and arrow is going to break and the arrow is going nowhere. 
So it's finding out the optimal amount of stress for you. And the key is looking at stress in a different way. So yeah, I was a little bit nervous to come up here. I'm nervous before a start line. But you could just say, I'm excited because the feelings are kind of the same. The increased heart rate, the increased breathing. When you're excited, you feel the same way. So instead of telling yourself, I'm so nervous, you can tell yourself, I'm excited. And there's another, I love psychology. So there's another great book and psychologist. The book is called The Upside of Stress. And her name is Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And this book has some really interesting examples of how people were stressed and they actually tested it empirically to see how mindset intervention will change how you perform. So they took a bunch of different students and they said to these students, okay, before this exam, tell yourself that you're excited, that you're gonna channel your energy in a positive way. Tell yourself that anxiety and struggle make you better before you take this test. And the other group, they said, eh, you're, just tell yourself you're stressed out, whatever, you can do whatever. Well, the group that had the mindset intervention that told themselves, instead of, I'm so stressed out, telling themselves, I'm going to channel my energy, I'm excited, this challenge is good, this is an opportunity for me to get better, well, they performed a lot better. So the next time you're stressed, try to tell yourself, I'm stressed because I care, and figure out why you care, and tell yourself that this is good, and that you can use and channel these emotions. And that can be a very important thing to do, because now your struggles become your greatest ally. So another part of living a high-performance life is learning how to create habits and goals. And goal setting and habit change is incredibly difficult. How many of us have tried to change a habit and failed? Like, I do that all the time. The biggest thing that I'm working on now is actually being having less clutter in my house because I'm so busy with all my projects. I just leave stuff and keep going. And then soon, and my husband does the same thing. So soon my house, like, you can't even see the counter. It's a mess, and then messes actually make you feel even more stressed out in a lot of cases. So my habit change that I've been working on is being less cluttered. And how do you do that? How do you start moving the needle in a way that's gonna stick? And the most important thing that I've learned is actually identity-based habits. So think about this. Somebody that isn't cluttered and that's organized, what habits do they have on a daily basis that are gonna contribute to them being a quote, organized person? Or if you're trying to be an athlete, what are habits that athletes have that will help you have the identity of being an athlete? Showing up consistently for training, eating a healthy diet, sleeping, these are all things. So if you start thinking about the identity of what you're trying to become and start trying to take on the habits of what you think that person is doing, it'll help you have better long-term habit change. Another thing is creating 1% gains every single day. So a lot of times we can get stuck in all or none thinking and whenever we want to change a habit, we think, well, it's too late. Or, or say you're trying to eat healthier and you have some ice cream and then you think, well, I've already had ice cream. Now I'm going to have pizza. Well, now I'm going to have French fries. And then you just landslide down. We've all been there. <laughs> so if you can just focus on being 1% better, the compound effect of those gains over time, if you think of what an exponential looks like, my math nerds, exponentials. So each 1% is gonna give you exponential growth in your habit formation. So that can be with being consistent with your training, which is, I actually struggle making my training the number one priority, which might sound funny as a pro athlete, but there's all these other commitments that I have that I love doing. So another habit I've been working on is trying to make my training, when I put it in my calendar for a time, staying accountable to that time instead of saying, well, one more email or one more article or 
or whatever. So I think to myself, what habits would my other pro colleagues who are racing be doing right now? And I think, well, they'd probably be taking this more seriously. So that's what I've been trying to do. The last thing about living a high performance life that I wanted to tell you guys about is diet. And someone asked a question about diet. There we go. Diet can be a very inflammatory topic. Uh, it's kind of like talking about politics or religion. But basically, just eat with a plant slant. Like, if you want to be the healthiest, I've gone through so much research. I've tried lots of things myself. Eat as many plants as you can, and you'll be healthier. Eliminate processed foods as much as possible. Reduce the amount of sugar and reduce alcohol. And try and eat whole foods and whole grains. Like, it's really not complicated. But we make it so complicated, like, well, should I go on this crash diet to try to lose this weight? Like, if we focus on being healthy, and we, we all know kind of inherently that this is how you're supposed to eat, you change the way that you feel. And if you start eating healthier, you stop, you stop eating all the uh, junk foods, your brain actually starts working differently because you have better blood flow. So the more plant-based you can eat, the better. You don't have to eat 100%. But there's an area, or there's areas in the world called the blue zones, and there's a great man named Dan Butner, and he's worked with National Geographic, and he has studied areas in the world where people regularly live to age 100. And he said, wow, like these people aren't just living to age 100, these people are thriving, they're chopping wood, like they're crushing it out there, like what are they doing? So he didn't come into them there with any agenda to prove anything, he just wanted to see what was happening. And there was, it was pretty interesting what he came up with. So he found different areas around the world, and the things that the people were doing were, number one, they were eating a mostly plant-based diet, a 90% plant-based diet. Um, number two, they were moving their bodies, and even, even gardening or chopping wood or walking, that counted. They had a strong sense of community, which many of us tend to drop community at the first sign of getting busy, and I am definitely guilty of this. I say to myself, well, I'm too busy to hang out with my friends, or I'm too busy to see my family because I gotta get this work done. But that isolation actually makes you worse and it actually makes you perform worse and it makes you feel burned out. So having a community aspect is so important. So that's something that I remind myself of when I start getting so busy and telling myself, no, I'm not gonna hang out with people. I actually make myself hang out with people because I know that that's gonna be better for me and I'm always happy that I did. The next thing is having some sort of spiritual component. So whether it be going to a church, whether it be your own practice of whatever it is, but connecting to something bigger than you can be so much better because we tend to just sometimes think that it's all about us. I, I'm guilty of this as well. And we forget that everything is connected and how important that is to be there and do that. So those are some things that for me, I've learned from bike racing. I've learned from my podcast. Um, being curious about why things are happening in your life and then just starting to explore why is this happening to me? Why do I think this way? How can I change this? The biggest question people ask me is how are you so positive all the time? And I think that the word positive is actually a little bit of a misnomer. Positive doesn't mean that you're smiling and happy and you feel good all the time. I think that positive is a trend. It's, it's a work ethic. It's always being ready to look at these situations and say, yeah, I feel like crap right now, but this doesn't have to be permanent. How am I going to turn it around? And that's how I stay positive all the time is I just choose to be that way. So from this bike racing adventure, which has been crazy to be able to race all these places, to be able to meet so many people, it's taught me that, wow, like what else can I do? It used to be that I wanted to get results to prove that I was good. 
And once I stopped trying to do that, I found that I could do other things as well. So for me, my number one purpose and sense of purpose is one of, another really important thing for happiness. Um, having meaning to your life and having engagement with that purpose can help you keep things in perspective when your small goals aren't going as well. So for me, my purpose is I just want to share everything that I've learned and continue to learn with as many people as possible because that means a lot to me. So I thought, well, okay, these are my, and I define like, what are my core values? What, what are the things that matter? Because it's, it's hard. There's, we're getting pulled in every single direction. Like, what are we supposed to be doing with our time? And, and there's all the things that we could be doing. So I try to choose things that are based on these core values and based on what my purpose is. And, and these things can change over time. So I've been able to start a podcast or create a funny brand where people actually are excited to put on a pair of socks that make them laugh and make them actually maybe try something different that day. Or just be able to connect with people on a much broader scale. And that's what we need. That's why everybody is, is really wanting to listen to podcasts or read these books is because we're just trying to feel good. But feeling good starts with looking within and figuring out who I am, how am I going to fix what... You can't even really fix it, but how am I going to accept these things about myself and how am I going to make them better? Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and we'll see you right back here with Crush It Mondays in just a few days.